0: I'm Megan Davis, the founder and lead storyteller of Spend Love and Lamb. I'm a narrative consultant. I help people and businesses tell and find the right stories to change our world. In this podcast, I talk to dreamers, I talk to rebels, I talk to people who are changing our thinking, and I invite you to go on this journey with us. Join us, won't you?
1: Natalie Renz. I am currently in Austin, Texas, and I'm founder of Startup Astria, which is developing autonomous habitats for Earth initially, something that is ultra-sustainable for Earth so we can combat climate change to some extent. And then really the ultimate goal for uh, the company is to build the habitats for Mars. Basically, manufacturing Housing um, in factories, um, assembling them, integrated with technology that will monitor the environments and monitor the
0: resources, and make sure that everything is optimized. Wow! So that's a pretty amazing idea, right? I mean, this is and it's a pretty like weird explanation. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I mean, <that> was <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you explained it really well. I mean, so there's two distinct components of what you're you're doing. So. The first is that you're trying to combat climate change by providing housing, but smart houses that understand what's happening in the environment. So if I was going to focus on on that, what was the uh, inspiration for this idea? Like, where did, where did this come from? When, when was the moment when you thought, this is what we really need to help people in the world? Moving forward. Yeah, so
1: the starting moment for all of this was the Starman launch by SpaceX um, with the Falcon Heavy. This was two years ago. Time is so warped right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it was kind of that moment where I thought that for the first time in, you know, in at least my life, that it actually seemed possible to send humans to live on another planet and to live on Mars, and my background was always human-related, so I um, went from biomedical science to neuroscience. And I just really saw this opportunity to to make sure that when we send humans there, that you know we actually enable them to survive um, sustainably. You know, not just for a few months, but for hopefully um, ultimately long-term settlement there. Yeah, it took a fair amount of time to figure out how do you build a commercial company around living on another planet in the future. And as I looked more into it, I think you, you have the problems which are much more exacerbated if you're on another planet. So being able to make sure that, you know, your oxygen system doesn't fail because that's, you know, fatal and being able to generate your um, your supplies for you know, using the resources that are there to make buildings and to get water and to generate fuel that at the same time, if you look at a lot of the principles of like living on another planet, they're the same as what we have here because we're still humans, no matter where we are. Mm. And the interesting thing about having to think about living on Mars is that the resources are so constrained that you're forced to think about it in a, you know, ultra, ultra sustainable manner, because everything has to be completely self-sufficient. You can't waste water, you can't, you know, let your oxygen evaporate or like not, not dissipate. And If you think about it that way, then you you kind of get to this point where you're looking at human environmental conditions for survival, which are the same as what we have here on Earth, but also in a self-sufficient manner, um, which is not something we've done on Earth because we've had all these abundant resources that we could just, you know, waste. Um, And so in order to get to the point that we're so optimized that we can live on Mars, we actually end up solving the problems that we have here.
0: Right. That's very interesting how you've made that that link as in Because we're living as if we have abundant resources, but in fact, we don't. So if you're shooting for like the most impossible environment, you're actually solving for a really possible environment, our environment, which has sustained life for, you know, millions of years. So we're kind of doing both at once, which is really cool, which is a really cool idea. But how long did it take you to come from that concept? to the earth problem right was it like an instantaneous thing or did you kind of go but wait a second you know? <laughs> like, how did that happen i think I, I kind of latched onto the idea of
1: sustainability being very similar as an issue uh, about a year ago maybe a little bit more and i wanted to go into optimizing our resources at that point in time um, and i found out to my kind of dismay that it's not really a field as much as we talk about it in the social narrative. It's not really a field that is commercially invested in. A lot of people don't really care about optimizing, you know, their energy unless they can say that they're being environmentally forward or unless they can save some money. We don't care about optimizing our water. Like in the US, we basically dump most of it out to the ocean. And so I found at the time that that was not supported. And so I went off. Like, we were focusing on spacecraft systems because um, that is a field where you have to optimize Um, And I eventually just got to a point that I came back to this. I was like, no, this is like, we really have to solve this.
0: Um, Right. I mean, if we want to go to Mars, we have to have people left to actually get there too. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I was looking at a pod. I think it was a podcast or it might've been a webinar. It's hard to say because, you know, everything is a webinar or a (laughs) podcaster because we can't meet in person anymore. So, but I, I think it might've been a webinar and it was, the speaker was giving a talk about sustainability and I loved his headline because he said the condition of the environment and the planet that we live on, is probably worse off than you think, you know, the, and, I, and I, that really resonated with me because I don't think I'm particularly educated about sustainability practices or issues, but everything I know about the environment, I think, Okay, this is critical. We're in a critical, critical state. But when I talk to a lot of my friends, they don't seem to have even that level of understanding. They all think it's like there's problems, but it's pretty much okay. But actually, no, <laughs> it's really not. And so I guess where I'm going with this question is, is, do you think capturing the imagination of people about this possibility of living on Mars Uh, an interesting in to the sustainability issue because you're almost, it's almost like a bait and switch, like, Ooh, Mars, like that's exciting. That's interesting. It's kind of sexy, but you're like, but first, (laughs) we have this problem and you can kind of go and we can use this to fix this. Like how, how are you positioning yourself? Is it sustainable on earth first or sustainable on space first? And then you're kind of going the other way. Like, that yeah how are your conversations going with potential investors or collaborators or partners yeah it's definitely an interesting discussion because if I
1: post about space things I actually I'll get like comments like slamming saying you know why are you putting your effort towards Mars when earth is going to like, pieces um, so there's like a lot of like anger about like why would you focus on space definitely for me just because I care about both for sure and I think there's even a bit of a constant like balance between the two, like, you know, are we a sustainability company or are we this kind of, like, futuristic space company? Um, it's hard to not care about everything. Um, but long-term, obviously, like, the, like, very visual goal is to get to get us on Mars. Um, I think if you talk to somebody about you're doing sustainability, it's a lot more graspable in a general conversation. But I think if you really want to get somebody, like, moving towards a the movement, then kind of, like, yeah, enticing them with spaces. I think it's a better way and you also avoid a lot of the just like being walked into the like politics of sustainability, which are not something I want to get into. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think in general, there's a, um, I don't know the quote exactly, but there is kind of a quote from Buckminster Fuller where he says that if the model is wrong, you know, if we're building unsustainability unsustainably, if we're living unsustainably, you can't just sit there and, you know, complain that things are not operating the way that they should be. Like, you have to generate an entire new model, which renders the way that we've lived obsolete, basically. Um, and something I think that uh, Tesla, for example, has done really well. Like, they didn't go to everyone and say, like, hey, you know, like, fossil fuel cars are really bad. Like, we should do something else. They're just, like, we're going to make such an incredible car with such an incredible experience that you don't, even if you don't care about the environment, you're still going to buy that and make sure that the rest of the other kind of models really become dinosaurs. But yeah. Mm. And what we we try to go for. Just make something so insanely cool that it becomes a norm in future.
0: But I think it comes down to space race feels elitist, yeah. especially when we're talking about populating Mars with just normal people, because they won't ever just be normal. There'll be people who have a certain amount of wealth and pop and privilege and power or existed or people who live in societies who can provide that. And then but sustainable housing has this really egalitarian aspect of how can we help, how can we save, how can we assist everyone, not just these people, but all the people. So there's this really interesting dynamic going on there. I don't know. I'd love to get your perceptions on this. Like, where are you in this system of, of, of awareness of these? Yeah, it's a dichotomy. I mean, it feels like there's these two tensions pulling this way and that way. I would actually say one of the reasons that I love being
1: in the space sector so much is, at least for the general community, uh, maybe not at the nation state level, but it is just the most welcoming, open community because you're all gunning for something which is much bigger than you are. Mm. uh, Bigger than, you know, it's it's beyond one country or the other for most people. Um, It's about how do you really achieve a step change for the entire of humanity and it's been really fascinating to me as i've gotten more and more into this field to realize how that kind of seed of desire for space is in almost every single person that you meet and i was never aware that so many people were this passionate about space until i you know started talking about it um, and so i think actually if you like it might be perceived at the moment as this you know billionaire race because they have the real risk taking um, capacity and money to make it happen at this point in time. But in particular, if you look at what um, Elon Musk and what SpaceX is driven for, it's to make something which is for the entire humanity. It's not about, you know, people being rich and playing around there. If you can do that, like, use that power to get us there and still open it up for everyone else to be involved. And especially young generation coming up, you know, if they grow up with, like, the norm of seeing astronauts there and seeing rovers being developed from here and seeing like the first habitats from private companies and I think you really open up the possibility that every single person could be involved in space in some way or the other so I don't actually see it as this kind of like retrace myself whereas sustainability I definitely think like the goal is to get you know across the entire globe like how do you help construction of better environments for every single person That, that doesn't like just maybe to counter your point again it doesn't actually mean that it's more egalitarian like in some Some of the worst cases I've seen so far is where you have the technology. In fact, in most cases, I think we have the technology. Like everyone could be on solar and renewable energy by now. The reason we're not is because of the people in power. (laughs) Um, They are not making the decisions to get us there. We can look at Australia. Another interesting thing about coming at this from an angle of space is that you're not coming at it from the same kind of like mindset. Like it kind of like throws this like thinking outside the box when you say like, "Oh, we don't have to do things this way." Um, we can develop it this way and there's no like mental blocks there because they're not associated with everything else sustainability that you've seen before. So yeah, I think, I don't know. I personally feel like you can achieve a lot more by like really gunning for something, which is for everyone.
0: Mm. Yeah. And it feels impossible because there is no roadmap, right? So the previous roadmap of getting to space was that the governments were doing it that roadmap's now gone,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: right? And now it's largely privatized. And so there's building this new roadmap. So the next question I have then is, if we have this future where we're using technology that was developed for space, and then it's, it's going out and it's helping the people of the world, if we look at other times when that's happened so you know in the 50s with the space race and into the 60s we had a lot of interesting consumer products come on the market you know like tinfoil and tang which is like disgusting but it's you know dehydrated apparently orange juice and you know there was all these different things that came into the consumer market and it did really influence our culture but a lot of a lot of that Stuff that came into the consumer market was actually really unsustainable, and that it was like high, high packaging, and um, it was single use, and um, and so now what you're saying is rather than these the the previous narrative, like it actually you know created a lot of waste, but now this new narrative is is that it's going to create we're we're looking for technologies that will trickle out from the space. Space development. I don't know if a space race is is an, a, an accurate description anymore. I mean, we probably need a new mm-hmm. way of thinking about this. But this space exploration. With that in mind, what about your habitats? Like, what are some core pieces of what you're building in your in your habitats? You'd like to see trickle or move sideways out into the rest of the world? Like, what are these core bits of what you're making that you'd like to see?
1: Hmm. I don't know if right now there's really a mind for how those things will trickle out because the problem that, or the challenge that we're facing with building them is itself going to be an insane journey. Um, The construction industry, especially in the US, is the only industry which is less efficient than it was last century at this point in time. So to go from something which is a raw material down the line goes through, like Ridiculous number of different hands suppliers until it gets to putting up a box on land the same way that we've put up boxes on land for, you know, probably thousands of years and probably worse actually than we were thousands of years ago because those buildings, you know, remained. And yeah, and then everything is separated out. So you go from building that, you go through all of your construction, which is then handled by different people, your architects are handling differently and then you go through real estate and then you go through companies like Google that provide your technology for the housing system and then if you want to add you know cool things like solar you go through another company and so I guess a lot of what we're going to be doing and I think a lot of our uh, challenges and maybe the technology that we will bring is being able to actually just integrate all the way down the line and make it like just insanely efficient um, in getting there so For construction, we're focusing on like panelized systems. So how do we basically have an assembly of a house that is offsite, like in a, you know, in a plant, not out on the land? Um, How do you use materials? Like we're, materials are a hard thing for us um, because we're one, trying to focus on things that we could use eventually on Mars. So like, I'm totally in love with rammed earth, basically, yeah, taking-
0: What is that? Tell me about that.
1: What, for example, the Great Wall of China was basically built out of, so how do you take Earth, which is local resource plentiful, Sometimes you use it with cement and make it you pressurize it. So it becomes a very, very strong, like naturally balanced material that you can source from anywhere. And obviously, once we get to Mars there's regolith. and so a lot of the like the 3D printing challenges on Mars are about taking this regolith and using a binder and making structures out of that. So that, that's one of the materials we um, we really love. I do love steel, um, but it's not as sustainable for sure unless you're recycling and then there's still a limit on that. Trees you can't really grow on Mars, so, <laughs> well, not, you know, fast enough or with enough time to grow, et cetera. So we're less into that. I think it's also pretty badly managed in a lot of places. Um so yeah, materials are one thing that we're we're going we're, we'll just be forced to develop better materials as we go along um, to achieve efficiency and sustainability. The process of making the housing—if you make it off-site, you're saving like forty percent of the waste and using better materials, so that itself is good. And then once we get to the habitats themselves, just integrating it um, and treating a house as a robot that you know really is self-sustaining with all of its resources in there decentralizing in a way the the energy and water systems so I don't know I think for us like that's that's our work cut out for a while and then if we happen to spin off things amazing
0: (laughs) (laughs) so all right can you walk me through a concept of what one of your habitats would look like or include you know like if we open the door what do we see what do the walls look like what is the bathroom like what's the kitchen like Like, take me on a mental imaginary tour. Yeah,
1: that itself is even, it's a really fascinating design challenge to put together something which is, which makes you think of the future um, and has those kind of concepts that we've come to associated with it, you know, like these very angular lines and bright white surfaces if you think about any of the sci-fi films that at the same time makes us think of the future as a collaboration with nature. And if you think about what you associate with nature, that goes to more of like the curved organic structures and, you know, woven or earthy feel, which are the very opposite design, like psychologically. And then the other thing is like, how do you paint or paint a narrative about a future and have this kind of futuristic housing without freaking people out because housing is something that we were very psychologically used to having this comfort of knowing these four walls and you know knowing the light bulb works like this and so yeah it's quite fascinating to try to like blend all these together into something which is so for us we've kind of ended up at the moment with kind of like a like a curved angular structure <laughs> which i like, think kind of make like a seed it's like <laughs> which like kind of achieves both of the organic and like futuristic. And then it's like not too crazy that people will think that they're living in a spaceship that you can kind of start to see that, okay, this is a, like a house but it's just like a slightly different house. And then again, with the technology inside, I think we're kind of definitely everything integrated and we're, we're obviously using machine learning, but the idea for us is not that you have to use voice command to operate everything kind of going for a more um, ambient intelligence that you want a system to really just intuitively understand that you know this is the temperature you like at this hour of the day this is the lighting that's going to be best for you getting to sleep at night without you having to interact with it and so that's the tech that's going in nothing too scary it's just some cool dashboards and things which we're, we're working on and then the resources obviously like the cornerstone for us like just making sure that that's just optimized without you having to think about it um, in the entire house. So.
0: so that means all water use is recycled within that house. So water doesn't come in from a pipe, doesn't come in. Where does the water come from? Well, yeah How do you get the water? Is it coming from the air? Is it collecting it?
1: Yeah, like water is by far the biggest headache possible. I think renewables are pretty straightforward at this point in time for energy. But where we're heading, even globally with water, it's we're going to have like sixty percent of the world's population in a water shortage in the next few years. And I honestly don't un- understand why this is not more spoken of. <laughs> so it's hard to solve water without like being somebody who has access to the the supply. And so we can do we can do all the small things, so like monitoring the water flow, like having like, constraints on that so you know have like water optimized toilets and taps and things like this, introducing <laughs> water reuse. So, you know, if you use something like a shower or like laundry system that that can go and be filtered and reused in the home um, or like out in the garden. Um, black water is like the nastier things where again you can start to develop um, and eventually we can get there um, our own kind of like land systems for that. But yeah, water collection is still like you're either going to have to rely on a um, central source Desalination is getting more economic, so being able to take salt water and basically filter that out, essentially how Israel has become weather independent for their water supply. And I think they reuse like 90% of their water. And then, yeah, rainwater. There is actually some cool technology that um, they put in the desert to collect water from the air. But
0: mm. I, I met someone who worked for a startup in Australia that developed this that technology where they put like a, a, a unit on your roof, and it just took water from the air. That's and, so cool. And yeah, and used it in your and you, that's how you used water in your house, your entire house, you know. And I said that's fantastic for especially like if you have a lot of money, you know. <laughs> if I'm of t- a lot of money, I can just buy one of these units. You know, they're not cheap. But I said, you know, what about the people who due to climate change aren't going to have any water? These people have nothing. What about those people? And then um, he said that they were actually starting up a fund so that every unit that gets built gets part of the funding of that is directing money into a fund to build these units in disadvantaged populations around the world. So I thought, okay, well, that sounds like a good idea. Because part of, I think, the discussion around sustainability is if we don't look after everyone, we all will become disadvantaged in some way. If we have mi- mass migration to places that have more wealth, those, those places will become disadvantaged because you can only take in so many people. Um, you can only support so many people in any one location. And so we must find better ways to support all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a big problem that's very close. It's, very, it's pretty close around the bend. Yeah. I think that goes
1: into like, again, something where, um, like Matt Damon's got a water conservation fund or a water not conservation delivery fund, which mm. is pretty, a lot of work on that. But I think again, it's one of those issues. Um, I spent a little bit of time last year talking to, um, people that are in the Caribbean where they actually surprised me or like I was surprised at the time, um, have a water crisis in many of those places um, because of the way that the climate has changed. You would think that in those kind of situations that people would be very enthusiastic to develop the systems that are going to provide you with better water supply or have trade with the countries around you which have better water supply. And I honestly think in 95% of these cases, it comes down to politics again. um, and even if you deliver those kind of like water systems to some of the countries, like they'll be taken by people that are in charge <laughs> because of the corruption. And so mm. that's I think it comes that that becomes a much harder problem to solve. Is how do you reliably get this technology to places? Um, I'm personally more of a fan of letting like developing local business around it and um, trying to get them like into more charge than delivering it through kind of larger funds where you don't know where it ends
0: up but yeah there is an inherent power structure in resource delivery we've seen all sorts of corruption <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and it's not a de- it's not a developing world problem it is the entire world's problem like the corruption within you know for example the US and Australia and you know all around the world it's a it's yeah. an issue Thing in Australia you have energy
1: crises there's drought and there's definitely enough means there to solve these issues and like why do we not solve them in Australia
0: yeah yeah because it's
1: not, of not technology
0: no it's not and yeah and it's very and that is a, a huge um, frustration and and possibly one of the reasons why we don't hear about a lot of sustainability issues Uh, or people aren't as educated as they should be as to the extent of these problems is because if you don't understand or you don't know, you can't demand. That's true. Because yeah, the right people that should be amplified, the voices and the knowledge that should be amplified are are frequently not. I think ultimately any of the sustainability issues or
1: probably any issues that you face... If you're really going to win, then you have to win it with economics because that draws everyone into it um, ultimately. If you make, you know, like keep cups or things like this, like things that are inconvenient for people to do, like it'll take a long time for you to adopt these things or if you have to buy your shopping bags or, you know, you have to spend $100,000 more to have a sustainable house or something like this. It's just like there's a barrier there that people just inherently very motivated will do but a lot of people just inherently lazy to kind of put that extra effort in to do the good thing especially Mm. with that repercussion of not doing it it seems so far in the future that it's not going to impact you as a person Mm. Um, if you can make the economics uh, work in your favor that it's actually equal or better to do the good thing it's very hard to stop that movement
0: right so in, in what ways are you thinking about that with the company that you're building like is, is part of that to bring the cost down substantially? 100%.
1: Um, so even things like off-site construction, is like, it's not at all a new concept. Um, we've been trying to do it for the last 100 years. It there is a number of companies now that are trying to do this um, in a scalable way um, in the U.S. and beyond. Yeah, if you can reliably do that, if you can get to a point that you can treat a house like a, a car, or another piece of machinery, then that massively um, increases your efficiency, which means that you increase um, your affordability for a user. Um, the other thing, of course, is, as I mentioned, with the supply chain, every single step that you add in that supply chain not only adds time, but it adds money because they'll add their own, you know, 10 20% to the cost of a raw material. I kind of did the calculation even for wood and you basically end up paying for the same amount as like one ton of the raw material as you would for a post that you buy in the store. Um, so if you can actually control that entire process, then you pass on all that saving to the end user. And so housing can actually become affordable, which at the moment it's not in the U S and then again, even just things like for us, like we're playing, uh, you can't see cause I've got this on, but we're, we're building the systems at the moment and like prototyping with Arduino. And so we've gotten, gotten all the sensors um, and, if we're looking at the like just basic sensors that you need to build the technology system, it can be like you know ten to twenty dollars for most of these um, environmental monitoring units. If I want to buy a you know a Google Nest, which is basically a, a temperature sensor and a bit of software, it's like seventy dollars, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have the same. It's, of course, there's testing, etc. There are other things that are involved in that, but. To buy any of this technology, if I wanted to buy it off the shelf, it would be in a thousands um, for us, and it's just impossible to go about that. So, again, we're as much as we can. We're we're just building everything ground up to just eliminate all these inefficiencies, and if we do that, and we should be able to do far more for, affordably for people.
0: That's a huge, huge um, project, and that you're completely reexamining every step of of a massive industry and. and what's the thing you focus on first because there's a lot is it <laughs> you know what's the entry point because we're talking about compassion. yeah like well, that itself like it's
1: definitely um challenging my brain is constantly fried just jumping between you know going through the manufacturing with the architect this morning to like dashboard design to investors to back to arduino this is like for me even just like still trying to figure out as a as a human how do I manage the different like attention costs like from switching between everything and then yeah in terms of like how do we start yeah I think our role focuses and the, like the rural innovation for us is in the, um, the systems so still like the software that's going into the housing. Um, I think we're fortunate that a lot of these things have been done separately um, and so we, there's a lot to learn from others in the field and so if we start with you know something like more of a, a rudimentary like structural system that we integrate our own like technology into that, then we can learn from what's already been done, and we can actually start to just iterate, iterate, and build, iterate and build, um, which is an advantage we have with housing. You can release like versions very rapidly with with housing um, versus having to develop you know a robot that goes to market where you have to really put in a lot of years of work to get to that. Mm. that model. I, was, I, I don't think you, you, can, you can pick one thing or the other. You just have to constantly like chip away at every single corner um, and survive.
0: Yeah. So you're kind of like if it was a big circle, you're like imagining you've got people all the way around the circle, and they're slowly taking one step at a time towards the center, where hopefully that it'll all meet, and then you have like this perfect habitat <laughs> like it's, that's come together from all these different moving parts. I guess that's one way, but I honestly, um, and something that excites me about working on this is
1: I know that I will work the rest of my life on this problem and never solve it. So in some ways I would say we're chipping out in every dimension to do with Astria. And so there will never be a day that we look at the software system, we go like solved it, done. Like, you know, there would never be a, a day that I think that our habitats are perfect. And that, you know, this is like the rest of Mars civilization cut out for us. Like the, there's just yeah you're just constantly going to have to optimize and improve and mm. new technology that we had hadn't even realized at this point in time existed um, as we go so just constantly moving out
0: yeah you know? yeah you're right i mean that is the exciting thing about if we just talk about people and where they where and how they choose to live that is an ever evolving story so i mean even if you walk around any small city anywhere you'll see Here's the oldest dwellings and this is what they look like. Here's the newest. And it is this complete story of evolution, isn't it? The way that we build, mm-hmm. especially, you know, even if you think of now where, especially in the U S this is always something, every time I go back, I'm like, Oh my God, because there'll be like the the pride of place is a massive three car garage. It obscures mm-hmm. the house. You can't even see the house. It's this massive garage. And, as someone who loves design and beauty, I think that is hideous. That looks atrocious. You took the ugliest thing and made it the biggest and put it in front of what could be te- potentially be very appealing. And whereas a house that was built 100 years ago, the beauty was the facade. So even if the house was only one story, sometimes the facade went up two stories because it looked grand. There was nothing behind it. Or the house was really long and skinny because that was the cheapest way to build. But the emphasis was on, you know, looking bigger than you were in the house. Mm-hmm. So it shows what our priorities are. And if we think, if let's, let's go 50 years into the future, I doubt we'll see garages. I don't think we'll see the garages like the beauty point of, look how many cars I have. Because, well, we need that many cars we want that many cars? Will we have autonomous vehicles? Will we be drove? You know, what will the story be like then? And what will we, how will our
1: focus shift? I think one thing that's been uh, interesting to think about is I think there are a lot of people that take pride in the movement of sustainability, you know, being eco-forward or staying in eco-lux places or using paper straws or, you know, doing any of these things. I guess in some ways, even things like veganism are compelled in some part by wanting to put out that you're sustainable, sustainably minded. And if you look at construction, there's nothing that actually allows you to brand yourself easily in your housing um, to show everyone else that you're sustainable. You have kind of one extreme where you can, you know, go and build your off-grid stay and you can have these earth ships, which I really think are not beautiful. Um, But You have your community of people where that's like very prominent that, you know, you're living off the earth. Um, And then you have people that really have the money to be able to, at this point in time, build hyper sustainable, top quality materials like technology integrated mansions, etc. And it's interesting because that's not actually reflected in the market. So those houses will not sell for any more than if you hadn't put all that effort into making them sustainable. To other people and if you arrive at that house there's nothing to really indicate to another person or even to look at from the street that says like this is a sustainable house Um, so i think there's actually a lot of yeah there's no branding to be done at present um, and kind of like labeling yourself with your assets which is what has always driven the prior housing right like you have these huge garages because you want to show everyone else that you're so wealthy that you have three cars and like you have this huge facade because that was the indicator of wealth at this time so how do you actually like build the housing in a way that shows everyone that you're sustainable, like in the same way, like, I guess like some eco Ford tech has done.
0: Part of what I was thinking about was, you know, Tesla has built sustainable car, but it's also a luxury car. People want it because people are like, Ooh, that's expensive and it's cool. And um, yeah. And that's part of the attraction is part of cracking. Cause we, we have to appeal to human nature. I mean, well, I'm, I'm, you know, we're, we're all kind of attracted to things that we find appealing. Right. So like, can we make it more visibly attractive or incentivize it in some way? Like we were talking about building the facade or the three car garage. Like, is this some way that, that you can maybe with your product or, you know, play with some kind of, yeah, I don't know, prestige or beauty or, something that's just a bit special, I don't know, but also make it really um, accessible. (laughs) Like, it's a big, it's an interesting thing. No, it's definitely, it's, like, top of our
1: mind with the design. It's making something which will be, you know, that, and we're starting on that luxury end as well. Hmm. Uh, I think, like, most technologies, even if you look at, you know, like TVs when they first came, or any technology that comes in, comes in at the top end and filters down to the mass society um tesla has filtered down to mass society by this point yeah i think if you start at the top and you make it something which a lot of people like idolize or want then you achieve that um spread a lot faster than if you start off out focusing on you know affordable structures because those will never it's much harder to go from the bottom up than it is to go from the top down yeah, we're definitely trying to portray this in the way that we're building. Um, it is a very delicate balancing game between everything, which we will eventually crack.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then as you say, you know, it is a shifting thing because tastes change, fashion change, the environment is changing. So, what will become top of mind is constantly going to shift. We are a very easily distracted animal. Like, ooh, what's the next? <laughs> what's the next cool thing? What else should I look at? You know, we, and we like new things. People like new things.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, part of me wonders how much in what we desire could be universal and how much is culturally influenced. So if you look at something even like Apple, which I think are still really the ultimate in design, they went through very, very simple, sleek, that intuitive design for their products, and also very signature design, um, and they just built a very strong culture around making that so intuitive for the user and so simple um, and elegant that like, you can't you can't really hate how an iPhone looks. You know, it's just like a very pure object. And so, like, do you actually like have to make a statement of something which is gaudy or something with a huge facade or something to get? Or you know, do you have to buy into what the culture of today is, which I honestly don't even know what that would be at this point. Maybe like this modernist, like, like plaster kind of building or something. Um, or can you create something which goes more to the core of what a human actually wants, um, which is just like very pure, pure design and like very intuitive use. I don't
0: know. Yeah, it's a complex. It's a complex question, isn't it? I feel like, I disagree. a designer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna
1: be polite. <laughs>
0: It's a complex question because, because we're always, I think, looking for a balance of the two. We're, we're constantly kind of pulled between functionality and beauty. Let's say if I'm buying a new bag, I should be able just to go, that bag is the exact size and does the thing that I want it to do, and it costs this much. I'm just going to get that. It's not that. It's, you know, what will match most of my clothes what are the, how does it look with everything else? Like, what does this bag say about me? What does it... That's the you most know? important element, is that last
1: bit. Like, if you look at why people buy insanely expensive handbags, you could make the most disgusting looking handbag for your season and people would still buy it because they're representing to everyone else that you know, this brand and what this brand stands for is something that I take part in, which is the same thing Apple did, I think, so well. The product itself is the representation of your values um, and sharing that with other
0: people uh, more than I think it is the actual object. I mean, if we talk about brands that are successful, they all have really good stories. Strong stories, yeah. Yeah. They, they build a culture, and cultures are built through the stories that you tell. That's the central component of what brings somebody around, Mm -hmm. central idea is how you position it but also how you tell the story of what you're doing and that's critical and I think that a lot of the storytelling around sustainability is intrinsically flawed it's almost like you're trying to it's often around like shaming people into doing something or beating them over the head with information that often people don't understand because you have to have like a certain amount of knowledge in a particular area for new information to make sense. But if you didn't have the knowledge before, then the new information just seems irrelevant. Because the thing is, well, I've never heard of this before. Why is this all of a sudden a problem? It can't be that important if this is the first time I'm hearing about it. I mean, this is typically how most people... We have too many things coming at us day in, day out. We can't worry about everything. So you have to just worry about what seems... This is critical. Now I can focus on this or I have to focus on this. Part of the successful you know, ways that I've seen sustainable companies position themselves is that they're creating a fun, cool thing to do with lots of amazing stories of, of the people who are joined in the movement. And, the, and they build like really great companies like um, Who Gives a Crap. It's this fantastic brand and they're able to do a lot of, I think, good work um, with what they're doing. But they're just a really cool, fun, interesting company to interact with at every single touch point, and they tell really great stories. so I think that that's part of part of the challenge as well is like how do you take something that's actually really can be really scary and it's really critical, and we're we're getting desperate, but like still making it like this really amazing place to be and like doing amazing things and telling amazing stories and feeling really good because that's so attractive I think you made a really good point
1: there a lot of the narrative around sustainability makes you feel guilty Um, I actually unsubscribe from most emails because it's just constantly like throwing the stuff at you and in some ways it's it's not as fun a movement to get involved in because you feel like you're just running from the ultimate demise of earth you know so it's like, how do you stop this from happening? It's a very, like, negative story naturally, whereas space is how do we move towards something, which mm-hmm. is everyone's, like, dream as a kid. And so I definitely think companies that manage to not go on that fear basis and, like, you know, play around more with, like, yeah, we're doing something really cool because this is what we're doing, like, for the future. This is how we're building a solution right on um and, like, don't you want to build the solution, too, rather than being like, "Yeah, there's fires and it's whatever, and you're just like, I don't want to see what it. it's like 7 a.m. Like, I think you always have to, like, compel through positive um, influence.
0: Because mm. then at least you feel like there's hope. Yeah. For, for most of us, um, living a first-world lifestyle, almost everything we do is highly problematic. You can't. I can't just go dig a hole and live in it. Like, I can't. It's... <laughs> And I don't even want to. I don't want to, right? I don't, there's no desire to do that. So, you know, I have to match what I can do with what's desirable for for my lifestyle and then figure out what else is there that's available to me. Like, can I give money to this fund? Can I stop doing this thing? Or even, you know, conscious consumerism, you know, part of that is looking at the thing you're going to buy and say, wait a second do I actually even need to buy that? Because do I have something else that actually already does it? Because we're so conditioned to segment out, I need a thing to do that, that, and that. But often we can just have the one, uh, one thing that does all of it. And you just have to be a little bit more conscious of how you're interacting with like the things you already own. But thinking that you're engaged in, because you know you've created, you're creating an aspirational space you're asking people to and inviting them into something that hasn't happened yet. So it feels like an open playing field. And then not talking, well, I think it's really important that, you know, we don't look at Mars as an escape option, right? I mean, I don't think that's what you're doing. You know, what, what is your ultimate vision for living on Mars? Um, yeah. No, uh, no, I don't think it's escape. <laughs> it's a possible escape if everything goes really bad. <laughs>
1: You yeah, no, I think this is for everyone for sure to get there and like that's step one. If you can create artificially sustainable environment that humans can live in off Earth in one planet, you can do it in any other planet that to some extent that
0: doesn't fry you. Yeah. Limitations, like we can't live on a gas planet. <laughs> right. <Okay. laughs> <Not> yeah. <enough. laughs> yeah, yet. Yeah. yeah.
1: At the same time, as you mentioned, the technologies that we end up producing from everything that we build for these insane environments, I hope that we bring these back um, we use that to make everything here better and then even just the um, you know the I think the psychological impact of being able to look back on earth and look at you know this like I find myself because I think about Mars all the time and I'll just have these moments where I like look at, like, I don't know, i could just like fixated on the squirrel outside the window the other day because I was like, oh my God, like nature made this squirrel. <laughs> or like you would look up at the clouds and be like, wow, like isn't just beautiful that we have these clouds around us. And because we're not going to have any of this thing, these things that we are used to when we go to Mars. And so I think the appreciation it gives us for how much beauty is around on Earth um, is, is heightened and hopefully heightened for everyone as we start to to live there more permanently. Mm.
0: And so, I guess my final question for you is: Do you want to live on Mars? Yeah, for sure. I think
1: you look at the course of life, like you know, six million years, or even like which is relatively short that humans have been vaguely in existence, and you look at the fact that we get to be in that like tiny little, like tiny little sliver of time where we have the opportunity to be. The generation that made us interplanetary, I don't know, it never ceases to make me feel lucky that we get to be alive right now. And so why would you not want to be the first human to go there?
0: <laughs> I'm the first. <laughs> yeah. And and then once you're there, what's the goal? Is it research? Is it, you know, because once you're there, then that's over. What's the rest of that look like? What's the next step?
1: You're building a whole new settlement there. Someone's even asking you know, on Twitter yesterday what the political governance is going to be on Mars. and He said it's direct de- democracy. Um, so, yeah, it's not like, it's not like we kind of get there and put a flag and we're like, done. <laughs> um, you suddenly have to, like, one, advance research, which is a huge reason why we should be sending people there um, in the first place to look for if we, there are signs of life there, which I hope there there are all the that makes planetary protection a bit. Challenging. Um, so yeah, to understand a lot more about the nature of life. Um, but then too, if we're settling Mars and you have everything to build from the ground up, you have all the infrastructure um, in a much more challenging environment. We're going to only be able to ship every two years because of orbit. So it's going to take longer um, to get everything up and running. And then you have all the societal like systems, um, everything. You're, you're building a city from nothing. So I think that's pretty much yeah. As I said the rest of my life cut out if I can build some of that. So.
0: it's pretty exciting. Maybe one day I'll visit you.
1: <laughs> in case you decide you'd rather be in like a hole on another planet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine living on Mars. I, I think I'd like to visit, but I'm just, I'm too in love with this planet. Like there's so much I haven't seen. And um, I'm so fascinated by all the different cultures and, architecture and food and languages and music and the complete crazy diversity of insanity of this planet is um i you know i'm intoxicated but at the same time i would you know if someone's like do you want to come visit me on mars i'd be like yeah totally for sure let's do it
1: (laughs) you send me postcards from all these amazing places and i'll save you to your visit (laughs)
0: Right. I think in the future though they might be like 3D hollow experiences. So I'll like film it and then you can just step into it and then I'll be like, and you have to smell this dish. Like it's you know, you can just like do this and it smells amazing. It's like all these different things, you know, will be included. So yeah, I mean this is the future.
1: (laughs) It's interesting that we have no capacity whatsoever to share smell digitally
0: you know odor
1: at this point in time visually we're not like we're getting there obviously we're on zoom at the moment but something which is so important to us and probably one of our strongest associations that we have with memory for ourselves like you know like the smell of home and the smell of dishes and the smell of nature and we've not come up with any way of um, transmitting this so maybe you should work on that <laughs> the the <of> cooking your <laughs> grass
0: <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's like you know the way things look, yeah, you're right. It's, it's one dimension, but it's, it's everything that, together that makes it so incredible. Yeah. yeah. So do you have any final words that you would share with my listening audience?
1: What I want to say? I think something that's been really fascinating for me along this path is, so like I started Astria initially with absolutely no idea how I was going to solve this problem at all went on a very um wild um ride of a year and eventually you know got to this point with the with the astronauts launch this year where I had this kind of like crisis moments and I think for me just realizing that even though I would embarked on this journey in the first place that I was still really being held back by um, the feeling that I didn't have all the experience necessary and that I'd never gone into housing I'd never been an architect um, never done any of these things that seemed like I would have to have them under my belt to to achieve the, the goal that I was um, going after. I feel like I really took the safe route up until that point. And, yeah, I actually messaged a, a, f- a friend at the time and just said, you know, like, why is anyone going to, like, you know, trust me, they're just going to laugh because I have none of this experience. And he was like, they're not doing what you're doing. So, like, they can basically, like, stuff it, just gun for it. And it's been a really interesting, like, in particular these last few months to – to kind of like throw away all of that mentality about you have to have known how to do this stuff. Like I bought all these books on architecture. I was reading like prefab textbooks. Um, and just like mentally, once you abandon that kind of safety and just say like, jump, like go for the cliff, jump. And you're going to figure out how to build the wings as you're going down because there's no other way left, you know, and it's been just the most rewarding few months kind of having that new mindset. And so I guess maybe like what I would, would want to share is that if there are people are, that watch this and we're just thinking about something insane you know like I don't know, whatever there's so many problems that we we need to solve right now and thinking that this is not something you've ever done before and that like seems impossible like just go for it like there's nothing you have one life
0: and and it's your fresh eyes that will probably lead to the innovation knowing can often stop you from doing things because naivety is the best <laughs> Like you can't be done. Like, but why can it not be done? <laughs>
1: I just have no idea that the thing that you're like, oh, that's surely like, surely I can just factory build a house. Like it doesn't seem that hard right now um because I've never done it. But yeah, I don't know. I think it's great. Always be naive.
0: Yeah, fantastic. I think that's that's a perfect message for the audience. Always be naive, and nothing will stand in your way. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, thanks for your time today. Uh, I really appreciate it. I think it's a really, really interesting discussion. I'm sure people are going to be excited to listen to it. Thanks again for your time. I appreciate it and enjoy. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. And thank you to my guests on this episode. If you found this episode interesting, please share it with your friends and rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. Curious about how the power of narrative could work for you? Check out my business website, www.spendloveandlam.com. That's www.spendloveandlam.com.